It's the Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast. It is episode 92 for Monday, February 22nd, 2024. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, insight, and perspective from members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Joining us today, Jason Cooper, Research Analyst. Hey, Jason. Hey, Danny. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So we like to start our episodes off by thanking all the listeners that come back week after week. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend, colleague, or family member. We really enjoy making these, and your listening and spreading the word means a lot. So let's dive in. Yeah, let's start with uh, the upcoming data calendar. You know, last week uh, there was almost uh, kind of a paucity of data. FOMC minutes came out. That was kind of interesting. But really, in terms of this week, it begins to pick up. On Monday, today, we have new home sales. That's going to be kind of interesting to see if we continue this uh, trend. We had 8% growth in new home sales from the previous month. Can that trend continue or not, especially in the face of now higher mortgage? Mortgage rates. It's kind of an interesting situation we're going through. But then we get uh, Tuesday durable goods orders. I always like looking at that one, not necessarily for the headline number, but when you dig into the components, the machinery orders, and you really do have to go to the website in order to get this type of detail. That one actually correlates pretty well with upcoming earnings for the S&P 500. So it's Mm -hmm. something that I'm paying close attention to. Wednesday, we get the GDP revisions. Those came in at 3.3% annualized. Are they going to revise it up, revise it down? Nobody really knows, so we're going to see what that is. And then Thursday, we get the breakdown as far as personal income spending and the Fed's inflation gauge, the PCE deflator, personal consumption expenditures, that deflator, which is a type of price index. It might actually take a little bit of a move higher. Last time, it came in at around 2.6%, so we're kind of within spitting distance of the Fed's target, but now it might bounce up a little bit just because of some of the seasonality in there and a slight increase in some of the components. And then on Friday, ISM, the Institute of Supply Management, the manufacturing index for February. Last time that was at 49.1. This is a diffusion index. So anything below 50 indicates contraction, that things are slowing down. And it's been in contraction territory for like 18 months in a row. Is that going to finally break above 50? We'll have to wait and see. That's the calendar for the week ahead. Of course, we've got some earnings as well. And I think that's uh, something that we're really going to dig into with this SWAT podcast is really taking a look at uh, health of earnings. So maybe let's get into some of those strengths. From the macro picture, I would say that manufacturing, you know, with the ISM index at 49.1, S&P, they have their own measure. The flash index came in above 50. It hit a 17-month high. So is manufacturing beginning to find a footing here? Maybe that's some reason for optimism. But most of the reason for optimism probably comes from on the earnings side. And so I'll turn that over to you, Jason. One name really dominated earnings last week, and and that was NVIDIA. Hopefully our listeners aren't tired of hearing of it already, but their continued ability to beat expectations, I guess, recatalyze the AI outperformance. It's interesting because we've seen AI compared to the dot-com bubble, I I don't know, I want to say over the last year and a half, really since the outset. But there are several differences. So when you're looking at these paradigm shifts, 
You can think about it in terms of an S-curve adoption. So you have your early entrance, and then it almost starts to accelerate, goes through a, a hockey stick period of just rapid acceleration before the new technology is basically fully adopted on a global basis. So that was true with anything from electricity, air conditioning, but especially access to the internet. And when you think about the dot-com bubble, it almost discounted a decade in advance some of the advancements that you'd see from software companies like Microsoft and some of the, I guess, more global infrastructure and logistics capabilities that you would see by melding commerce with the internet from companies like Amazon. But what's interesting about this transition is that a lot of the tools or infrastructure that is needed to accomplish the transition are already in place. So back to .com, I remember in like 1995, my family was one of the first families to have a PC. It maybe didn't become more broadly adopted until the early 2000s following the .com bubble. And then people started to learn how to use software. Well, now for the AI boom, the majority of people already have access to the internet. They have access to computing. They have access and readily use software on a day-to-day -day basis within their, their jobs. So the only thing that's missing is the compute power behind AI. And we're seeing all of the cloud service providers like Alphabet and Meta, Microsoft and Amazon, they're competing to be the first and the best provider of, of effectively that compute power, which means massive build-outs across all of their data centers so that they can satiate the demand that's already here. So it's, it's not just like the dot-com bubble where you had the prospect of global commerce taking place on the internet. It's that people already have access to the internet. They have access to the software. And the software providers are rapidly adopting their platforms to incorporate artificial intelligence. So the only thing that's really missing is the training of the individuals, which doesn't seem to be hard. At least from, from my usage of AI, it's very intuitive and seems to increase productivity very rapidly. And then there's the compute power. And that's really where NVIDIA comes into play. So their ability to just get orders and satiate demand, if anything, they highlight as they bring out their new Hopper 200, which is a, an iterative improvement on the Hopper 100, you know, they're still unable to satiate the market's demand. So all, all of these fears that they're going to miss, you know, they only guide out one quarter, but they have pretty good line of sight on the orders. And it seems that the buying power from the cloud service providers, again, these are companies that generate hundreds of billions of dollars on an aggregate basis in free cash flow. The money's there for the investment and they're competing to capture market share. The other entrant, which was highlighting on NVIDIA's call, is the sovereign cloud. So that's governments actively investing to build their own data centers so that they have, I guess what you would say, data privacy or the ability to house data on a sovereign basis reducing the fear that other countries gain access to that data. Mm -hmm. And similarly, governments have the power to tax. They have, to a degree, the power to print. Their ability to fund that build out also seems relatively unimpeded. So if you're thinking, can this continue? It's not going to continue exponentially. We might be past the massive period of acceleration, but it still seems like the growth trend is going to be significantly outpacing GDP which from an earnings perspective on the go forward basis, and, and that's what the market is trying to discount, it's where will things be a year or two from now? It, it's still a massive potential for, for earnings growth for a lot of these businesses. 
You know, I'm kind of curious, your take, when I was listening to the earnings call, he talked about a tipping point. And maybe can you uh, elaborate on maybe what he meant by that as far as uh, is it a tipping point as far as the manufacturer of these as far as get volume out there or tipping point as far as on the use cases of uh, the the chips? I think he was talking about the tipping point with respect to the amount of compute power within data centers mm-hmm. tilted towards inference. Mm-hmm. So you, you have training and then you have inference. Training is training on data sets so that ultimately the um, generative AI is able to generate its own outputs. So basically what he's saying is that the market is shifting to have a significant amount of the output with respect to data analysis aimed towards now generating output from an AI perspective. Mm, Yep, that makes sense. And just for a little analogy here, you were talking about with the dot-com bubble and the use of the technology. I, when I was working on my dissertation, I used artificial intelligence, these techniques. Okay, now that was just over 20 years ago. I had to chain together 12 laptop computers in order to do a rather small artificial intelligence model, a neural network. And now I could run that model on my phone, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, you're absolutely right as far as, you know, these techniques, they're there, they're developed. It's just, it really is all about the compute. And then I'm also kind of interested as far as the, you know, kind of follow on about, well, what about the energy to power these things as well, you know? And so you kind of look at the whole supply chain, value chain, whatever you want to call it, as far as you've got the technology, but then who's going to benefit from it? And then also, how is it going to be powered? Yeah, I think Microsoft was actually talking about building small cell, what is it called, small cell nuclear power plants to fuel its data centers, which is kind of interesting because you look at, from a supply-demand perspective, there's a pretty significant uranium Mm -hmm. imbalance right now. So that kind of makes the case for having exposure to nuclear to a degree via uh, uranium. Um, We don't know necessarily how quick that might materialize, but the deficit's already there. So that's an interesting way to, to play that. And it makes, from my perspective, way more sense than the alternative way that we seem to be going from an energy generation perspective, which is utilizing intermittent power from green sources like solar and wind, because you need these things to have 100% uptime. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much. If uh, the sun goes behind a cloud, you can't afford it to uh, suddenly like, oh, it can't compute anymore. Yeah. It, now, obviously, NVIDIA was a huge story and will continue to be. It's going to be fascinating to watch that. But they weren't the only one who reported earnings. What's been your feel for the general tone of earnings season? Uh, I think we're most of the way through it. Uh, not completely. Are you ever completely out of earnings season? You know, but I think at least with the <laughs> S&P 500, most of them have already reported. Yeah, we're about 80% of the way through. On an earnings basis, I think 75% of the names have beaten expectations. We're back to seeing your sequential growth in earnings. So this is the second straight quarter where the index has reported positive earnings growth, which may be concentrated because you do have a lot of these AI names driving a disproportionate share of the beats and total value of the earnings for the market. But the market's response has been interesting. So we've seen the market rewarding positive surprises more than it historically does and punishing negative surprises less. So it's not like when the market was in correction territory and, and something missed and it fell out of bed. 
it's a miss now, it's, it's down, but it's not down that much. Mm -hmm. And what that tells me is that from a strength perspective, there is an undercurrent of bullishness in the market. And mm -hmm. maybe that's from a strength perspective, discounting an opportunity, which is earnings growth to return to growth, because you've really had almost three years of flat to no growth, especially on a, a real basis. Well, yeah, that's a really good point. I think a lot of people are almost distracted by the economic numbers, where you see the GDP numbers on a real basis, so inflation adjusted, you know, beating expectations, very positive, unemployment rate very low, and so they incorrectly assume that the economic strength has translated into earnings strength and it really hasn't you know and i think that's something that a lot of investors kind of scratch their heads about as far as how important is the macro really to the micro and when i say micro i mean to the companies and obviously macro does matter but maybe not as much as what uh, some investors sort of think and the market is a discounting mechanism, so it's not looking at where we are now in the cycle. But another area of strength has been industrials, and, and Brian, you highlighted that like the, the manufacturing print has been in a contractive territory for 18 months yep. mm -hmm. with the prospect that maybe it, in, it inflects back to growth. But industrials have been stealth leaders. You know, the, the market seems to be saying that there are significant structural tailwinds for these companies and that maybe on a go-forward basis, earnings will significantly surprise to the upside. That'd be a nice change of pace <laughs> compared to when they were surprising to the downside. Maybe if we shift a bit to weaknesses, um, you know, obviously a lot of strength on the earnings side, NVIDIA, maybe manufacturing moving from weakness to strength. But when we look at some of the, on the macro side, you know, the service sector data, it's strong, but it does, I think, demonstrate some peaking behavior. The S&P Global Purchasing Manager Index, the flash one that came out, so it's an early read. That actually hit a three-month low. It's still an expansion, right, but it's coming off of the boil, of off of the really high level of growth. We've noticed that when it comes to, say, the average work week, that has been declining. So even though for January we had a really great headline non-farm payroll number, Maybe it was because of how cold it was. A lot of people didn't actually go to work as much as what they typically do. And so you saw the aggregate weekly number of hours worked fall month on month. We won't get the actual uh, February numbers until March 8th. So even though they do release it on the first Friday, Friday is the first. And so that's a little bit too soon. So it's going to be the next one. We'll have to see if that trend continues. But it is something that does seem like it's kind of in place is that the average work week is falling. Oftentimes employers, they know how hard it is to find employees, train them. And so instead of firing them, laying them off, the first thing that they oftentimes like to do is try to cut back on those hours. So we'll see if that trend continues. So we do have some signs of, I would say, some weakness, right? It's not overwhelming. I mean, the balance, I think, is more strength than weakness. But what are you seeing in terms of on the earning side or on the equity side that any signs of weakness that uh, have caught your attention? Well, the one message that I continue to hear that you could describe as a weakness that ties directly into the labor market is that a lot of these companies continue to push through higher wage rates for their employees because they, they continue to be scared. I mean, you, you highlighted the cost of training new employees. 
it's so prohibitively expensive to find and train somebody as opposed to retaining your employees that are already significantly more highly productive. So I'm continuing to hear, I mean, I heard it was like two calls on Friday where they talked about, specifically within the service segment of the economy, the need to reward their employees Mm -hmm. and push through wage rates that were probably above what we historically saw. And that translates to margin weakness on a go-forward basis. And the other interesting predicament from a weakness perspective is if that strength in wages causes the Fed to have rates higher for longer, that should also translate to weakness across, I would say, interest rate sensitive securities. And you continue to see that with, I would say, the real estate and utility sector specifically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll have to see how things shake out. The Fed really doesn't seem to be in a hurry to cut rates. The minutes indicated that some are concerned that they're going to hold them for too high for too long. But that's minority view of the people on the Fed. The vast majority have been talking about, you know what, we can err on the side of cutting later as opposed to sooner. So we'll have to see how that uh, all shakes out. But let's maybe shift now towards opportunities and threats. And um, I don't know, you know, when I think about the opportunity, there's the opportunity for the Fed to stick the soft landing or have no landing, right? The economy is in good shape. Um, Maybe they can do some tweaking around the edges with rates, pull off some sort of event like we had in the 1990s, late 1980s as well, where they were doing more fine tuning. So they didn't have to like dramatically cut because the economy was slowing. They didn't have to reverse course and start hiking because inflation was coming back. They were doing more of that fine tuning and recalibration of policy. But then, you know, the threat, of course, is that they get it wrong. Um, And so, you know, when we're looking at the market hitting new highs, I think a lot of people are asking, okay, is this new high, is this an opportunity or is this a threat, right? When do you know when to run with the herd versus fading the herd? At the end of the day, the market should track the aggregate earnings. So what we saw over the trailing 12 months was the MAG-7 significantly outpacing an equal basket of securities within the S&P 500. That's the past. What's going to happen in the future? Well, just based on analyst estimates, we're looking at MAG-7 earnings in the first quarter starting out at 34% and then decelerating throughout the year until the third quarter, where it's still going to be a respectable 9% comp, but that's a significant downshift from a growth perspective. Meanwhile, you have the 493 other stocks, and they're projected to have negative earnings growth in the first quarter, a small, small negative, negative 1%, but that's still not great. But as we head into the back half of the year, that's going to accelerate to approximately 21% based on estimates in the fourth quarter. So when you're looking at the market making new highs, we have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of that is driven by concentration. But under the surface, I certainly think you're starting to see breath emerge. So you're seeing industrials trading better. I think you're starting to see uh, down capitalization, the mid caps trade better. Those companies aren't as susceptible to higher interest rates because they have less leverage on their balance sheets. They have better management. They have a history of growth that have catapulted them from like the small cap index to uh, the mid cap space. 
And that just indicates that they have either proven goods or services that they've been able to sell into the market. The, the other area that's really interesting is some of these small biopharmaceutical stocks, and they're trading really well. And what we started to see happen at the end of last year was a pretty big M&A wave. And pharmaceutical companies don't typically grow via their in-house research. A lot of them grow via bolt-on acquisitions. And we were going through a, a long period of time with low M&A activity, but that started to accelerate in the fourth quarter and it continues into the first quarter. And as a result, you have active managers looking at these biopharma companies saying, well, which one's the next one? And that puts a bit of a premium under them from a price perspective. Mm -hmm. And that premium allows a lot of these unprofitable names to then go into the market and sell equity to fund their growth. So it, it's a weird virtuous circle where you have interest from an M&A activity perspective, effectively catalyzing a reacceleration in prospective growth in, 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 in the entire small biopharmaceutical industry. And that was corroborated on an earnings call where a clinical research company that works specifically with small biopharma companies, they, they kind of highlighted that this would be a trough year from an earnings perspective. The trials that are going to be carried out this year are a result of planning from the last year. But they're starting to see these companies get access to capital, and they're looking to, to really step up their research activities as we head into 2025. Yeah, and be also from a positive perspective, I mean, healthcare has been responsible for the largest revenue surprise in the first quarter of all the sectors. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I would have assumed that it would have been tech, right, or some semiconductor. But yeah, that's fascinating that it's healthcare. And, you know, one of the things with some of these biotech ones, uh, I, I just remember over the years, they're almost like lottery tickets sometimes it feels like, you know, as far as very waiting for the yeah. Yeah, big payoff. Or and it can be very speculative. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's why you need to do the fundamentals, which is what you do and focus on so much. Yeah. And uh, I think I might need a PhD to Brian in order to really uh, <laughs> do some of that type of work. Well, you know, the, the virtuous cycle, right, what would turn that to a vicious cycle? Uh, I think that's kind of one of the key questions when you do get to these new highs, fear of missing out. What are some of those things that could um, make it where, you know, new highs used to be old hat, nothing to worry about, but at what point is it like, okay, we're beyond the melt-up phase? And so what sort of things could perhaps be a threat to the outlook? I think the biggest threat would be that the growth doesn't materialize. So right now we have analysts estimating that this year you'll see earnings grow 10%, next year 13%. But if that period of having higher interest rates for longer begins to bite the economy, it's going to impact earnings. Um, that's not being discounted yet, but you never know when a systemic problem might materialize and how that'll impact the various sectors or industries. And that's where I rely on you, Brian, to... Uh, <laughs> from an economics perspective, inform us about those threats. So what do you say? Yeah, yeah, on that front, I think that right now things are looking pretty good, except for the reversal of the trend that we saw with inflation in January. I can easily dismiss that based upon certain features of the data, digging into it. And I think that right now, the February numbers, when those come out, are going to show a retracement back towards that trend towards the 2% target. But that's the part that I 
I could be totally wrong about. And so if we do see the uh, January number repeating in February, all of a sudden the Fed, they've reset the clock. I think that Governor Waller has effectively said that he needs now a couple more months worth of data. So it didn't completely reset the clock as far as when they might start cutting, but I think that it did actually rewind it a little bit. So I think that's one of the big risks is that they do need to reverse course. It's not my base case scenario, but that's the type of thing that not only would it affect market sentiment, but then also the pressure that it would put on small regional banks, commercial real estate, and households in general, or companies that are getting to the point where they feel like they do start needing to refinance some of those loans that they termed out. So it is something that I think that we need to pay close attention to. Let's roll through some headlines. What's our headline strength this week? New highs. Aren't those fun to celebrate? Headline weakness. Are we there yet? Fed pushback continuing and yields continuing to rise. Headline opportunity. This virtuous cycle that Jason was talking about. And our headline threat. I'm going to go with commercial real estate. Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. This is episode 92. Jason Cooper, research analyst. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. Dr. Brian Jacobson, chief economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.